How many are glad they're here? Good. Mm. Well, if you're uh, new to us, we want to welcome you to the faith community. We're glad that uh, you made it this morning, and we hope that you'll uh, make acquaintance with a few people and uh, that uh, we'll see you again. Um, it's always nice to have uh, folks dropping in on us and people here for the very first time. We've had a number of them. All through the summer, we've just, um, it's just been amazing how the, the attendance has stayed up and new people have come along and we've gotten to know some new families, so it's uh, pretty exciting. Uh, I want to jump right in this morning. For several weeks, we've been uh, taking an in-depth look at um, the various themes, the dominant themes of the great book of Revelation, and we call it simply the back of the book, for obvious reasons. Um, each message has brought with it its own homework assignment for the week. And uh, talking to people, I find that some people are actually doing their assignment, which is kind of cool. Um, which means probably some people aren't, but it's easy to forget it if you don't jot it down or give yourself an on-purpose reminder. So the reading this week, your assignment is Revelation chapter 20. That's 15 verses in all. And... Um, that will, the reason I'm giving these chapters to you a little bit at a time is after you've heard the message and you're trying to put together sequence of events and uh, symbolism and what these things mean and what was the purpose of this and how's it all going to play out and are we getting near the, uh, the end times, and et cetera, et cetera. If you will take that information and then also read uh, the chapter that I'm assigning to you and maybe read it a couple of times, it will really help to... Um, to, to amplify what's been said and help you to understand better what uh, the teaching is all about and what John is saying in the book of Revelation. So now, if you want, you can bookmark that in your Bible, just that spot, Revelation chapter 20. We may visit it this morning. We have a lot of other uh, addresses in, in uh, Scripture that we want to uh, go to. Or you can put it in your notebook or your tablet or your smartphone or whatever. But this is not an excuse to text, all right? Um, if you're texting, then text the church and tell them, or text people and say, this is where I am, where are you, and this is where you should be. But uh, speaking of texting, it's, I am always interested in watching people walk around different places. Some people cannot, cannot do anything without that thing in their hand. It doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter whether they're alone or a group of people or whatever. I know for some of you, this is a real burr under your saddle. And for some, like, yeah, that's, I thought I was born with that in my hand. I didn't, nobody ever told me the difference. But there's some, it's like when cell phones first came out. Anybody that had a cell phone, if you just walked around with it like that, even though you weren't talking to anybody, you really, really looked important. People thought, oh, man, that person must really be doing some, you know, that's important business. And now people think that if you're playing some kind of game, tic-tac-toe, or whatever you play on there, that you're really doing some serious stuff there. Well, with that in mind, a group of women were at a seminar, and the seminar theme was how to live in a loving relationship with your husband. And I know, ladies, that sounds like it's a very contradictory uh, statement to start with. But anyway, that's what the conference or the seminar was all about. And at one point, one of the speakers asked the group, they said, how many of you love your husband? And all the women raised their hands. See, women lie too, guys. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then they were asked, well, when was the last time you told your husband that you loved him? Well, some said today. Those were the super spiritual ones. Some said, a few of them said yesterday. Some couldn't remember. <laughs> we're getting closer to it all the time. Then the women were told, take out your cell phone, because the speaker knew that probably every one of them had a cell phone, and text to your husband these words, I love you, sweetheart. After a few minutes, the women were instructed to exchange phones with another person and to read aloud the text message that they received in response to that message. <laughs> I'm just going to read for you the top 12 replies, okay? <laughs> If you've been married a while, you understand that these replies are a sign of true love. Who else would reply in a, such a succinct, honest way? The first reply that was read was, who the blank is this? <laughs> 
Second one was, hey, mother of my children, are you sick or what? (laughs) Third uh, response was, yeah, and I love you too. What's wrong? (laughs) Number four, what now? Did you crash the car again? (laughs) Notice the again. (laughs) Number five, I don't understand what you mean. (laughs) That's my all-time favorite. Six, what the blank did you do now? Uh, I think it's seven, it says eight, but whatever. The next one, don't beat about the bush, tell me how much you need. (laughs) The next one says, am I dreaming? Next response is, if you don't tell me who this message is actually for, someone will die. (laughs) Next one was, I thought we agreed you wouldn't drink during the day. And the last one was, your mother's coming to stay with us, isn't she? (laughs) Yeah. Kind of tugs at your heart, doesn't it? Mm, Yep. Lots of fun, those electronic devices. Um, I've started every every message in this series with some probing questions, and I ask that you just, uh, you don't don't answer them audibly, um, but just, just to get the intellectual machinery in gear and just to get you thinking about, you know, what, what, um, what we might be facing here. So um, let me just give you those probing questions. We'll leave them hanging out there. We're not looking for immediate answers. Some of them will be answered as we go through this message. Some of them will be answered for you when you read Revelation 20. The first question I have for you is, will people get what they deserve at the judgment? Or will people get what they don't deserve? Second question is, and just let these sink in a little bit, and think, think, just think about them. These are not questions that you're asked every day, so you don't have to kind of be on that plane, but I'm trying to get you to uh, a place where you can really dig into this. Second question is, why is God different from other judges? <clears throat> Matter of fact, I, I want to put a supplement to that question and ask, how does knowing what God is like affect your feeling about appearing before him one day? Hmm. And, and I just put a little subscript in there. We, 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 we kind of hope that God's kind of turns out to be the way we've pictured him, don't we? Or the God that we've made in our own minds. But when you really know who he is, how does that affect your feeling about appearing before him? The next question, number three, is did Jesus see heaven and hell as lasting only for a specific time? Or forever? Fourth question is, what parts of our lives will be judged? When we say there's a judgment coming, when we say we're going to stand before God, our maker, what part of life is he going to judge? What's he going to look at? And then finally, Paul said, so we make it our goal. I'll be referring to this in a bit. We make it our goal to please him. And I'm going to ask you a point-blank question. Does this then affect your attitude about life, about God, about the future, about eternity? Does it affect mine? Paul said, we make it our goal to please him. Does this reflect in your attitude? That's the question, and those are the questions for this morning to kind of get them, get the brainwaves moving along. And that brings us to message number six in our series, and it's entitled, Real Justice, Once and for All. I want to take you back in time, for those of you that uh, recall this and may have been watching, uh, you may or may not have, for several weeks during the winter of 2002, Millions of followers were embroiled in a controversy over accusations of bad or biased judging in the Winter Olympics, which were going on in Salt Lake City. I'm, I'm going to ask how many remember that that actually happened or that it was a really, really big worldwide news story. And if, if you didn't catch it, that's fine. Or if you don't remember, that's okay, too. 
It began when the International Skating Union suspended a French judge, Marie Reine Laguin. The, uh, the Olympic pairs figure skating judge admitted she experienced, quote, a certain pressure from another country, end of quote, which she described as tremendous to vote a certain way before the games even began, before the first blade was even on the ice. And though she later tried to deny it, she initially stated that her own, the French Federation, pressured her to vote for the Russian skaters, leaving the Canadians, Jamie Saleh and David Peltier, with a silver medal. When everybody in the world knew they had skated a gold medal. One media account stated, and again I quote, the controversy renewed complaints over the subjectivity of judging and brought to mind the Cold War era when many competitors suspected that medals were sometimes awarded on the basis of politics, end of quote. And that is a very comprehensive and true statement. Truth is, and, and, and by the... No, there's a, there's a sequel to this. But the truth is, if you are going to be judged, you don't want a judge who is subjective. You don't want a judge who bends to pressure. You don't want a judge who responds to bribes or is motivated by politics or ideologies or someone that say, well, that court is rigged or that judge is fixed and cheating, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, the end of that story is, the gold medals were the the, the silver medals that Saleh and Peltier won were later upgraded to gold. This was such a, a universal, if you will, uh, backlash that the uh, Olympic Committee could do no less. Interesting, there has also, as I thought of that, I thought of the proliferation of television shows featuring judges. Yeah, in the past two decades, <laughs> some of you, it's your favorite, I can tell. But the thing about those shows is they seem to all be alike. Just the name of the judge is change. I think it started with People's Court. That's my all-time favorite. How many like People's Court? Judge Watner. Then the spinoffs began. I like these shows because they belittle people. <laughs> And they just tell people off. And they just say behind the bench what you want to say yourself. But they're saying it for you. I guess the queen of those is Judge. You love her too. <laughs> I do love her. I highly respect her as a matter of fact. She has a phenomenal background. Judge Mathis, Judge Hatchett, Judge James Curtis. Oh, Judge Mills Lane, who was a real... Um, uh, a real district judge in Nevada, but he wasn't known for being a judge. What was his big claim to fame? Yeah, he was a referee of some of the biggest boxing championship match bouts, you know, in the world. Uh, but anyway, Judge, uh, judge Mills Lane, I don't think I'd want to be sitting there or standing there before Judge Lane. Uh, and on and on the list goes. There are more of them now, and, and uh, Judge Janine and all the rest of it. You can tune into court TV and watch uh, people being judged anytime you want. So if you really want to get off on somebody, but they're not around, and you want to just put their face in front of you, turn on TV, uh, court TV and watch to your heart's content and just have a great time. And pretend that's the person that you want to... Yeah, yeah. We're fascinated. No, no. This is human. We're fascinated by people getting their just dues. Come on, be honest. We're fascinated. As long as it's not us. Had to throw that disclaimer in there. Let's hope we never have to stand in front of a TV judge. Huh? Or any other for that matter. But yes, there is coming a judgment in which all of us will take part and the Bible says this in Acts 17, 31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That man can be no one other than Jesus. 
We will be on trial for how we've used our lives. Um, I think someone has done some teaching that is uh, misleading and erroneous in some of the Bible churches over the years, that Christians will avoid and evade all judgment. There'll be no judgment of anyone who knows Christ or names the name of Christ. I want to clear that up for you today. We will be on trial for how we've used our lives and whether our relationship with Christ has been a real relationship or has been nothing but hypocrisy. We will not be standing before an earthly judge who is subjective. Just think of that, isn't that great? Who is biased, who yields to pressure, who is ill-tempered, but the judge of all the universe. In Revelation 19, our chapter of the last lesson, uh, said that is the one who judges with justice. This is real justice, once and for all. Yet all the more reason to take the final judgment seriously, because this is a very sobering truth. And even on my way in here this morning, and even in the time I spent alone before coming to the platform, I I thought about the fact that this is not an easy message to deliver. I haven't had one in this series. I'm preaching from Revelation, folks. And it just gets tougher and tougher. But, you know, we need to be toughened up. We need to be ready to handle the the great nuggets of truth that we find there. And uh, so the Apostles' Creed, some of you were brought up uh, reciting the Apostles' Creed. Here's what it says uh, when it gets down to talking about Jesus Christ. It says, Jesus Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. The Bible itself says in Hebrews 10, verses 30 and 31, For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That was the text for a very famous Jonathan Edwards message during uh, the First Awakening. There's so much to say about this important topic, but let me begin by saying, just first of all, first things first, the judgment to which I'm referring this morning, will be totally fair. Here is a judge who does not take bribes and he does not take sides, and he's not influenced by anyone, anyone, anyone. He is not subjective, but he judges solely on the truth. Hmm? The real truth can be terrible because there's no denying it or getting away from it. I don't mean what you and I perceive as truth, but I say real truth, the truth. Because there's no denying real truth, and there is no getting away from it. At the final judgment, it will be totally fair, which means that there will be no excuses and there'll be no justifications and there'll be no deals cut. There'll be no influencing the judge. There'll be no giving bribes on any side. There'll be no no comparing with anyone else. Only the truth will be taken into consideration. The final judgment will not be like a media circus event, like the O.J. Simpson trial. How many uh, remember going through that year? justice will not be mocked, it will not be uh, maligned, it will not be mangled, it will not be swept under the carpet, it will be carried out in absolute impartial fairness and total equity. Here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 5. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. So think about this judgment. The Bible also says that God does not judge by external appearance. That's in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6, where Paul is trying to encourage people to get their act together and to get back where they were, living by faith and living in the total freedom of the grace of God. His judgment is absolutely fair. I think now that's three times I've said it because it needs to be repeated over and over and over and over. That may be the only time in your existence that you really get a fair shake. I don't know what kind of hand that life has dealt you or will deal you. 
And I don't know how many times you will have to be forced to say, but why me? And in essence, what you're saying is, how come I don't get a fair shake? And we live our lives, don't we? From one why me to the next. So let me just say for the fourth time that his judgment is absolutely fair. Fair to you, fair to me, fair to the worst sinner that you can think of that's ever walked on this planet. It will be fair. In one of Michelangelo's powerful paintings, I think they were all powerful from what I understand, they're all so rich uh, with emotion. Every one of Michelangelo's paintings just has a message. It just almost jumps off the, the canvas. There is a man in this one, uh, supposedly at, at, a, at the final judgment, who is being dragged down, obviously to hell, by demons. And he has a hand over one eye, and in the other eye there is this look of what's called alarmed awareness of personal failure and exposure. And looking at the painting, you see that he understood what was going on. But listen to this, folks. He understood it too late. In fact, as many people do today, he knew the truth all along, but he ignored it and denied it and cast it off and postponed it. I like what William Sloan Coffin said, and I quote, Hell is truth seen too late. I believe that at the judgment there will be the kind of alarming comprehension which will fully recognize the truth and the fairness of the judgment of God. People will agree with the truth on that day. They will agree with the fairness of God's They have no choice of God's evaluation of their lives. But let me add this. The judgment will also bring something else. For many, it'll bring one great regret. And that regret is they ignored and refused the grace of God and just merely lived their lives for themselves. Another famous theologian said, whether the achievement of a man's life is great or small, significant or insignificant, he will one day stand before his eternal judge. And everything that he has done and performed will be no more than a molehill. And then he will have nothing better to do than hope for something he has not earned. Not for a crown, but quite simply for gracious judgment, which he has not deserved. That is the only thing that will count then, achievement or not. So let me restate that judgment, and I think some of you are trying to get the rest of this, or is it all up? Judgment for many will bring one great regret, that they ignored and refused the grace of God and lived their lives for themselves. So it would be more accurate to say, I keep saying judgment is fair. It'd be more accurate to me to say judgment as God deals it is more than fair. Let me explain. For if we belong to Christ, what a great estate that is. We will not receive what we deserve. (laughs) Please do me a favor as a friend. Don't ever cry out to the world, and please don't ever cry out to God and say, Oh, God, please, give me, just give me all I ask for. Just give me what I deserve. Woo. Just think where we'd be today. Just think what we'd be today if we ever got what we deserve. And I know this tips the halo for some people, and it kind of 
you know, when you're dripping with all that self-righteousness, it, it kind of makes you gulp a little bit. But just be thankful we're not going to get what we deserve. Because here's the, here's the rest of that story. We're going to get something far better than what we deserve. We're going to be given, and we've already, it's already been offered to us, the greatest gift of all. And that's the gift of grace. So do we get what we deserve? Not if we know Christ. But do we get what we don't deserve? Yeah, if we know Christ. And that's the gift of his grace. Again, the word of God says in Psalm 103, starting to uh, read at verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Can I just stop there? I've had so many people over the years say, well, I guess I just have the short fuse and I just like everything just bothers me. And I just, you know, uh, you know, the mouth goes, the jaws in motion, the brain isn't in gear yet, but that doesn't matter because I want to say it. I'm going to say it and everybody stand back and here I come. And oh, yeah, the world just impressed. Some people tell me that and I think you don't have you didn't even have to say that. pretty obvious slow to anger see sometimes that's our first response come on your piety is overwhelming me i don't know what to do here it's like i can't break through the wall sometimes that's our first response not our last response well i'll show him boy i'll teach her a lesson but the lord is slow to anger Passionate, gracious, abounding in love. Don't look at somebody else this morning when I'm preaching this. Get the mirror out. He will not always accuse. Woo. Woo. Nor will he harbor his anger forever. I'm glad. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. There it is. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the, from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I used to preach messages like this, and I'd go into the, all the scientific data that I could find to show you how far the east is from the west, and never the twain shall meet, and all the rest of it. But look, that, the word of God ought to just speak to it, uh, for itself this morning and speak peace into your heart when you think about these verses. I love this story Steve Winger told a while back, or he actually, and he wrote about it, and he wrote about taking a final exam <clears throat> when he was in university. Um, in, in what was called a logic class. And uh, the professor was well known for his difficult uh, exams, especially the final exam. And if you ever uh, were in a university or a college and you had a professor like that, you, you can kind of identify. I can remember back in our day, there would always be one course in freshman year that one professor would stand up and say, at least 50% or 75% or 80% of the people in here, there'd be like 200 people in the class, um, will fail this course. Not might, not could, not it's possible, not the record shows, you will fail. (laughs) Those are the kind of professors you just tolerated. (laughs) So this professor, teaching logic, and he's well known for difficult finals. Steve writes... um, as a matter of fact, have you ever heard of an open book exam? How many of you ever heard of an open book exam? Those could be some of the toughest exams. So here's what he said. He said, to keep us, or help us on our test and to keep us focused, the professor told us we could bring in as much information to the exam, now listen to this, as we could fit on a piece of note paper. Most students crammed as many facts as possible on their 8.5 by 11-inch sheet of paper. One student walked into class. I love this. Put a piece of note paper on the floor and had an advanced logic student stand on that paper.
The advanced logic student told him everything he needed to know. <laughs> By the way, Steve was the only student in that class to receive an A. He wasn't breaking the rules. The instructions were very clear. You can bring in one sheet of paper and have everything on there, all the information you want, but only on one sheet of paper. Some of you are getting it now. It's good. Take a while. I'm trying to preach slowly. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our final exam. At the last judgment, the final judgment, the judgment, call it whatever you want, will be more than fair because we're allowed to bring with us someone who will answer the questions on our behalf. We could never pass that exam on our own. Not a hope. But we have someone who will stand on that paper for us and provide all the answers. Real justice, once and for all. First off, it's going to be totally fair. Secondly, it's going to be full. And when I say a full judgment, I mean all will be judged. Everybody will be judged. Um, you say, well, who, who does that include? Well, if you're not quite sure who everyone is, I'll tell you. It's the living and dead. It's the great and small. It's the rich and poor. It's the good and bad. It's the church member and the pagan. It's the genius and the mentally challenged. I think we've covered it all. I'm saying no one, not one single human who has ever lived on this planet will avoid the judgment, and God will fully take all things into account. Nothing will be passed over. Here is what Jesus himself said in Luke 8. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. For those who are without Christ, nothing will be hidden of all the things they've done. So that's going to include wrong things. It'll be there for all to see. On the other hand, for those who've received Christ into their lives and experienced his forgiveness, nothing good they have done will be hidden. It'll be shown to all. It'll be a full judgment. It'll be revealed at that time. It'll be a time when the first will be last, and the last will be first. There are going to be a lot of surprises. I'm so glad I don't have to be God and figure it out. Wow. I mean, what will he do? I've, I've played these scenarios in my mind, I don't, and you have too, for years and years. What will he do when there's someone who has never heard of Christ who's standing next to someone who's had all the advantage of the gospel and the church and the truth of the word all their lives? How does he balance that? Easy. He's God. I'm not. Nor are you. What will he do about those who don't have the mental capacity to fully understand it? You know, we've just glibly just classified or set all those people in one little group and said, oh, you know, God's, God's going to look after that. Well, you know what? God's already looked after that. How's he going to handle that? I don't know. Why? Because I don't need to know. Because God's handled it. See, we, we need to be thinking of God in, in bigger terms than we do. I, I, don't, I know who God is. I know that God is fair. I know that God judges justly. I know that God takes all things into account. I know that God weighs all the evidence before any verdict. Whatever he does will be completely fair and equitable, not only to the person being judged, but in the eyes of the entire world. Most people think of it, oh, it's just a simple matter. Just either I'm going to heaven or going to hell. And if I go to hell, all my friends will be there, so it'll be a great time anyway. Mm-hmm. Wow. I just suggest one thing for you, if you have of that persuasion. You need to do a little reading. 
You need to take a quantum leap out of your ignorance and find out what really is all this is all about. They don't understand even that there will be degrees of reward as well as there will be degrees of punishment. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, he said a lot in Luke, and Luke captured it beautifully. He said this in chapter 12, 47, he said, The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. That's pleasant. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So this is a day that you and I, each of us individually, ought to take inventory. How much has God blessed us? How much has he given us? How much has he entrusted us with in these lives of ours? Because that's going to be, in part, a measure of how he will judge us and how he will look at us on that day. If you've been given great privileges and you, some of you say, well, I, I wasn't brought up in privilege, and I don't know, I didn't have a silver spoon in my mouth and all the rest of it. Look, that, that's, I'm not talking about wealth. I'm talking about privilege. And I don't think there's a nation on earth where the general population has had more privileges than the nation you and I are living in today. We've squandered them, and we're paying dearly right now for it, and we'll pay for them. But if you've been given great privileges, then you are accountable in ways that other people are not. I'm going to say that again. If you have been given great privileges, and, and, and I, I would debate this with you if you wanted to sit there long enough, and I'd be glad to take the questions, uh, and I know I can refute anything you say about you not having privilege, but if you have been given great privileges, then you are accountable in ways that other people are not. If you remember the parable of the talents, the master gives to one servant ten pieces of money, to, and to another he gave five, and to another he gave one. The Bible says in Matthew twenty-five fifteen, each according to his ability. Now, the master didn't give ten talents to the one with the least ability. That probably would have been the way our government would handle it. But to the one with the most God does not, listen to this, God does not expect what we cannot produce. Some people spend their whole lives agonizing over this if they could just learn this truth. God does not expect what we cannot produce. But he does expect us to use what we've been given. This parable teaches also that there are different levels of reward. The more you use what God has given you, the greater your reward will be. No way you can read in or out of this parable anything else. The one who hid what he had, what happened to it? And he wouldn't use it? For free, uh, he was afraid he might lose it? What happened? He lost the little bit he had. And in 20, uh, verse 29 of that great uh, Matthew 25, uh, he, Jesus said, For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Now, in response to this, here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And it's just so exciting to, to read when Paul gets in on the action here. And here's what he says in chapter 3, starting in verse 10. He says, By the grace of God, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. <laughs> but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If you're building on anything else today, my friend, you're building on a false foundation. Period. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, yeah, capital D, the day, that means the day of judgment, the final day, will bring it to light. 
It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test, uh, test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. And that's where we say saved as if by fire, even though only as one escaping through the flames. It's a full judgment because not only will everything we do be taken into account, but every thought we've had, every motive, every intention. Listen to the description of the fullness of the judgment as described in the book of Hebrews. God wanted the Hebrews to know this. Chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Look at verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. If you're a Bible underliner, I'd get my red pen out and underline that, that one sentence. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Bible says also in 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, Therefore, by the way, you've, note takers, you've had a great time getting lots of scripture in these last six messages and I just want to thank you for your diligence and, and working at that because it's, it's, it, there's, it's been a lot. It's been a lot. But I don't apologize for repeating myself over and over and over with the words the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we read this in verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. Oh, my word. We become Judge Wapner so often in our own lives, don't we? I mean, we just get Judge Judy all over, and somebody just goes, and other people do it to you. You would never do it to anybody else. And I know I'm talking to a, a crowd that has no idea what I'm talking about here. But, but huh? Huh? Just wait till the Lord comes. Why not get it fair and full? Why not get it right? Why not let him handle it? That's where 90%, 95% of the breakdowns in human interpersonal relations comes from. People jumping to conclusions, making a judgment, hardening their heart, putting up a wall, and say, now, scale this if you can. Yeah, right. Now, we'll go to the pastor. He can figure it out. Took us 20 years to get here. He can do that in 20 minutes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What does it say we ought to judge before time? It's still up there. Can we, can we put that one back up? The last verse we had up there. Uh, First Corinthians 4, 5. First Corinthians 4, 5. Tell me when it comes up. Somebody jump up and down. Yeah, he has it. We're under attack. Those were all checked before we started. All right. First Corinthians 4 or 5, who has it? Just read it for me. Thank you. So what are we to uh, judge before the Lord comes? Nothing. Judge nothing. But wait till the Lord, the Lord comes. So the next time you're getting reamed out by somebody, you might say, could you just wait till the Lord gets here? <laughs> Why? Because uh, Paul told, told me to say that. Matter of fact, he wrote me a letter. And I was reading it. And it said, 
Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. It's a full judgment because not only will punishment be handed out, but rewards will be given. Ooh, I like that. Not sure I'm going to be in line for any, but I'm sure many of you will be. And I, I mean that sincerely. As well as punishing those who do wrong, there's going to be a time of great rewarding. Now, these are not going to be the same judgment. I'm talking, when I talk about rewards, I'm talking about the beam of the judgment seat of Christ, which is where all Christians will appear before him. People say, well, there'll be no tears then. There will be tears of disappointment. For we haven't lived as we said we were going to, or promised to, or vowed to, or whatever. We didn't always follow the dictates of our hearts, our good intentions. There'll be some disappointment. And it's not until you get to Revelation 21.4 that all the tears are wiped away. That's when you're in heaven and there's a new heaven, new earth, etc. Hopefully we'll get to that teaching as well. Jesus said in Revelation 22.12. Look. I am coming when? Do you believe that? I believe it 2,000 years sooner than John did. John heard the Lord say, hey, I'm coming soon. And that was 2,000, give or take, years ago. Say, oh, then it must not, yeah, I guess that's not going to happen. When's it going to happen? I don't know, but we're 2,000 years closer. That excites me. And then again we read in Hebrews eleven six. 6. I mean, I know we have this because this is a verse that really, really, really speaks. Without faith, what? Without faith, faith it's really hard to please God. Without faith, plus a little bit of works, without faith, going, but going to church every Sunday, without faith, but if I hang around a bunch of Christians, but without faith, look, without faith it is what? Impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists And that he, what? Rewards. Rewards. Don't you like that word? Those who earnestly or diligently seek him. So, real justice, once for all, going to be totally fair, it's going to be full, and it's going to be final. There are no second chances. There are no do-overs. There are no reincarnations. Anybody that believes that, you're going to come back as, as a sunflower or you're going to come back. As, no, no, we've had people sit right in these seats, probably some sitting right where you're sitting today, who believe that Grandpa was coming back on, as a butterfly or if they look up at certain nights, they can see him waving or, or winking in the sky. I mean, hmm. And some people even believe they, they're going to have a chance to come back and try it again. They're going to wish they could come back and try it again. Let me just say you can do nothing then, but you know what? You can do something now. You can make a mid-course correction. You have the opportunity to give your life to God, and I mean really give it up. And begin to live for him productively. But the day's going to come when those opportunities will be gone. They'll be over. Because the day's coming when you'll think your last thought, when you'll sing your last song, when you will make your last decision, when you take your last breath, when your heart beats its last beat. And time for you will be no more. And the Bible says... Hebrews 9, 27. Just as people are destined to die once, after that, after death, what? Face judgment. Now, don't be scared by this verse. I'm not trying to uh, scare the hell out of anybody. I'm trying to scare people out of hell. Uh, No, I'm not really. 
because that wouldn't be a good motive. Well, would it? I'd much rather you be motivated by love than by fear. By the grace of God, and the mercy of God, and the kindness of God, the tenderness of God. But let me just take this one verse, Hebrews 9.27, and tell you that if you're born once, you will die twice. You'll suffer a physical death, and you'll suffer a spiritual death. But if you're born twice, you will only die once, which would be the physical death, maybe, and you may not die at all. What a deal I have for you. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once, and maybe not at all. That'll keep you going. And i got to tell you, there are so many wild, popular, and they're popular, they're out there, in, 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 they're out in our world, uh, theories, I, and, and I, I just have to take my word for it, I meet this all the time, and I meet it especially when I'm dealing with death, and I'm dealing with some family, and, and you know, they may be a Christian family, they may not, many of them are not, and you know, like I said, they're you know, lost as a goose in a snowstorm, they just don't even, they don't even understand the words, they just don't get it, and and it's sad, but mm, some theories, some of the ideas that people have. What is eternity? What's it really going to be like? Well, let me just start off. Some believe there is no hell. We've been dealing with a question relating to that in the the Big Hairy Audacious Question uh, series. Others believe that after you have been in hell, or wherever you might go, some think there's a stopping point, like, um, you know, you stop off in purgatory for a while and you get a certain number of sins burned off so you can keep going on the journey, and then, oh man, wild, wild ideas. Some churches teach this, as a matter of fact. Uh, You just stop there for a while, and then you go to hell, and then you suffer there, but you suffer long enough, and then after you've suffered long enough and paid for it, you get out. Really. And then there are others who believe that those who don't make it to heaven will simply cease to exist. You know what? We live, we die, that's it. I mean, I can see how that'd be easier to believe. It's just so far from the truth that it's pitiful. All interesting theories and all kind of have their neat ideas (laughs) But what did Jesus have to say about it? After all, he's the one, he's the only one who ever stepped out of eternity and into this capsulized thing we call time and came to this earth, his own creation. Surely he more than any other would know what eternity is. So Jesus said this, and I quote, then, uh, Matthew 25, 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I'm going to get your attention now. All of us are created to live forever. And there is nothing anyone can do to change that fact. We're going to live with uh, forever, either with God or without God. And we can't change the fact that we're going to live forever, but we can change where we're going to be forever. The word says... He will punish those, 2 uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction, and they'll be shut out from the presence of the Lord. Well, i got to tell you, outside of the physical suffering, that would be hell in itself. Can you imagine? No, you can't. None of us here could imagine. Can you imagine if for one millisecond the influence of God and the Holy Spirit were taken from this world? You think we're in chaos now. And from the glory of his might, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, this includes you. Oh, thank you, Paul, for recognizing the Christian. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. 
Hmm. Little wonder Paul said, so we make it our goal to please him. Remember I said that earlier? Whether we're at home in the body, this is 2 Corinthians 5, by the way, 9 and 10. Whether we're at home in the body or we're away from it, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that, and he's writing to Christians here, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things come that come will please him whether we're at home or in the body. There we go. Receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So you say, will I be judged for all the things I did before I was a Christian? The answer is no, but you'll be judged for all the things you've done in the body. In other words, while you were still alive on planet Earth from the moment you did accept Christ till the time you're in his presence. And I don't mean judge for good or bad, heaven or hell, but I mean this is a rewards judgment. Now here's the response. And like I said earlier, this isn't a response of fear. This is a response of love. This is responding to what God has done for you, is doing for you, will do for you, and who he is. I want to jump back, if I can, for just a moment before I close. I want to jump back to those 2002 Winter Olympics. (laughs) Um, I, along with millions and millions of others around the globe, watched a young U.S. lady, brilliant person, uh, by the name of Michelle Kwan, you never saw Michelle Kwan skate, go on YouTube or somewhere and watch the most artistic figure skater the world has ever known. Matter of fact, she's the most decorated United States figure skater in history. But the 02 Winter Olympics was kind of her swan song. She made the team in 06, but then she had a hip injury and decided for the betterment of the, of the team and out of respect for the Olympics, she would not compete. So 02 was her, her last shot at it. I still can see that sweet little face of Michelle Kwan cringing before the judges after the final performance at the Olympics because she had slipped and she had made some critical mistakes in her program. And there were tears of regret when the judges posted their remarks. One slip on those blades took away the Olympic gold medal. Matter of fact, she went down to bronze. And that image is in my mind as, oh, that was so disappointing, so discouraging. That's not how it's going to be for those who know Christ at that final judgment. For those who have been forgiven, the cringing will be gone. The fear will be gone. The waiting for some expected Result will be gone. Why? Because our sins have been taken away and God looks for the good we have done. And then he will say, and hopefully you'll hear these words. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. We read in the book of Matthew, again in Matthew 25, down at verse 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He'll sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. The final judgment is a time of great blessing. Let me say it again. For those of us who know Christ, for those who faithfully live for him, it will be a true home going. It will be a time of real reward and it will be a time of eternal bliss. I want to refer you back. Remember I said a number of times in this series that to truly understand the book of Revelation, you must understand the story of the prophet Daniel. Prophet Daniel had the vision of this final day. He had it. And he wrote about it. Thank goodness. And in uh, Daniel chapter 7, here's what we read. These are Daniel's words. As I looked up, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God Almighty. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000. You go home and do the math. Stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. This isn't Paul. This isn't Jesus. 
This isn't John the Divine. This is Daniel the prophet. Hundreds of years, even before the advent of Christ. So real justice, once and for all, will be fair, will be full, will be final. According to USA Today, a poll that was taken some time ago, I think this poll is a little old, but it probably needs just a little updating. Top five things people put off until the last minute. Here they are in order. House chores and yard work. Good time of year to be talking about that, right? 47%. Secondly, holiday gift shopping. 43%. Third, making doctor and dentist appointments. 35%. 35%. Of course we don't make dentist appointments. We wait till we get the toothache in that molar in the back, and we call, try to get a hold of a dentist on a long weekend. <laughs> Smart people we are. Fourth thing, calling relatives. Oh, I should call whatever her name is. I should call my father. I should call, oh, Uncle, yes, Uncle Fred. Why, you haven't called. I've been meaning to call him. And then changing the oil in the car. Any of you mechanics that are here today know exactly what I'm talking about. People say, I can't figure out why this thing blew up, or why she's on fire, or why I can't get her to move, and the pistons are all stuck. That's a funny poll. I think there's one thing the people taking the poll missed. How about putting off getting our lives right with God? That would be at the top of the list, wouldn't it? You know why? Because somehow we think... That all these other things are important. We've got to get the yard work done, and we've got to clean the house, and we've got to wash the dishes, and we've got to call, you know, Uncle Fred, and, and we've got to get the shopping list uh, so we can start to, and we do all this, and these are all our priorities. And this, if it's even on the list, we'd be at the bottom. Getting our lives truly right with God and with others. We think it's something we can just put off till a later time, another time. Perhaps at the last minute, then boom, just before we can make that important decision. And that's the most important decision we'll ever make. The most important decision. It's possible to put that decision off another time, another time, another time, another time. And then guess what? There's no more time. The most important decision you'll ever make. Why give God the leftovers of your life? Why not give him all the time you have left? And why not do it now? You know, Paul, in Acts chapter 26, was preaching before King Agrippa. And at the end of the message, King Agrippa was under very, very serious conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he said, you know what, Paul? You've almost... Almost, the most damning word in the English language, almost persuaded me to become a Christian. And you know, in uh, Acts chapter 24, Paul's before the governor, Felix. And he's preaching the gospel, and Felix is getting interested. And he's starting to move spiritually toward that message that Paul is sharing. And he said, Paul, uh, um, um, I've got to go now. I've got some things to do. Could you come back at a more convenient season? Can I just tell you something? When you're confronted with the gospel, there's a very good chance there won't be another season. There's a very good chance there'll never be a more convenient time. There'll never be a better moment to give your life lock, stock, and barrel to him. And I want to ask you today, we're going to play a song here in just a moment. I want you to think of it as a time of, time of challenge, time of taking in what you've heard this morning, a time of invitation, if you want to call it that, whatever you want to call it. time of connecting, connecting with the message, connecting with the Savior. And why not connect with us if you're going to connect with Jesus and let us know that you've done this wonderful thing today. Pick up the connect card in your seat pocket. Give us your name and say, today I've accepted Jesus. Or I want to be baptized. Or I need to know more about all of this. Or I want to know how I can serve him. I'm taking this message seriously.
And Bob, I just wanted you to know, for the first minute or so of this song, I'm just going to stay right here and stand at the front. If you want to bring that card to me, that would be wonderful. Because well, you know what you're doing? You're saying publicly, I mean business. See, everybody Jesus ever called, he called publicly. When Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, he died publicly. This was not, as he said to Agrippa, this thing was not done in secret. This was not done in some dark place and nobody knew about it. Everybody knew it. The whole kingdom knew it. Those that were there, those that weren't. And if he would do that for us, we can do no less than stand publicly and say, I'm identifying with him. Thank you for listening.